0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and to entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the founder and executive director of the Flying Tigers 69th DRS Association about the legacy of the men who kept the Flying Tigers in the air during World War II, and so much more. In the news, GPS jamming and spoofing aircraft positioning systems 737 MAX 9 lawsuits, Boeing actions to boost quality, sustainable aviation fuel options, the FAA's opinion on airline pilot retirement age, the AV-8B Harrier phase-out, and a positive airline story thanks to a quick-thinking flight attendant. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 786 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is, well, another Max, Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a National CFI of the Year. And he's an expert on a Cirrus aircraft. Two Maxes. I find this so confusing. Do you? I do. I never know who I'm talking to
1: or... <laughs>
2: No, it's always fun to be here. But fortunately, both of your fuselages
0: are in great shape.
1: Exactly. To to the maximum extent that they could
0: be. I'm still processing that. I'm not sure what that means.
1: 737.
0: Ah, got it. Okay. I thought, okay, never mind. Also with us is our main man, Micah.
2: Greetings from northern New England. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to learning all about flying cats.
0: That's right. Also with us is Rob Mark. He's a business jet pilot, a journalist, and he publishes the Jetwine blog.
1: Hey, good evening. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about the uh, trip over the hump as well. You know, it's funny. W- when I was preparing for this, I always said, I, I know that Mount Everest is, is very high. I said, but I can't remember how high. It's almost 30,000 feet is that peak. I mean, most airplanes, uh, the, no propeller airplanes usually can get up. Quite that high. So this is going to be, uh, you know, I'll be up here in the in the thin air. and You'll be high. Wow. I'll be, I didn't want to say that. I thought that's going to sound really weird, but then everybody that knows me would understand. So good evening to everybody.
2: <laughs> Rob, that would be a good name for a website, 30,000 feet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Nah. Now I think about that. Who'd believe it? All right, well, we better introduce our guest for this episode. It's Charlene Fontaine. She's the founder and executive director of the Flying Tigers 69th DRS Association. It was founded in 2005 and is a nonprofit 501c3. The organization carries on the legacy of the 350 men who served in the 14th Air Force 69th Depot Repair Squadron during World War II. That Squadron's mission was to drive the Burma Road, fly the hump, keep the aircraft flying. Sometimes that meant redesigning, repairing, or rebuilding the planes. These guys could create something out of almost nothing. But as for Charlene, she's an international consultant, speaker, and author, a root cause expert, something near and dear to my heart, also a wellness advocate and researcher, Her main interest is how stress, trauma, and loss affects our daily lives, but her focus is on history and communication, how it shapes us, helps us make life better, and what can be gained. Charlene works with industry, the military, law enforcement, as well as veterans and youth. Charlene's been here before, but it's been a long, long time. So Charlene, welcome back to the Airplane Geeks podcast.
3: Thanks, Max, so much for having me, y'all. I really appreciate it. Um, This is such an exciting thing because you give me a a platform to share about our wonderful Flying Tigers from the 69th.
0: And let's start right off with that this episode. And we'll come back to the aviation news uh, afterwards. But we're going to begin with with Charlene. Now, Charlene, since uh, you were last a guest on the show, we've got quite a few new listeners. Um, Some of them, of course, are going to be familiar with the, the Flying Tigers and the DRS, But why don't you baseline everybody, give us a little bit of background, a little bit of history as to uh, what we're talking about here.
3: Yes, the Flying Tigers, the original Flying Tigers, um, were part of the effort to help save China from Japan. And this whole shooting match started actually in 1937, where General Chenault was accepted a a colonel position within the Chinese um, Air Force. And in 1941, he recruited pilots um, from the Navy and Marines of the U.S. military. And those pilots um, had to resign their commission according to to, to orders um, from uh, the president that they could not... Go fight under foreign soil if we were not at war yet, so the AVG was around for one year, and on july fourth nineteen forty two they um, their contract went away it, during that time from forty one to forty two they had a hundred p40s flying throughout China, Burma, and India and in nineteen forty two the Chinese air task force came about and to fight. CBI again and then in 1943 the 14th Air Force came about with the different fighter groups there and there were 25,000 men and women that served under General Chenault then there was a big challenge because it all came about and there wasn't a way for there were such shortages in China at the time in food Aircraft, fuel, you name it, it was gone. And so General um, Chiang kai or Cosimodo Chiang shek to be proper, he went and sent his wife, Madam Chiang Kai-shek, to the U.S. Congress. And she was the first person at that point in time, a foreign dignitary, to deliver a message to our Congress to ask for um, help And they wanted a special squadron that would come to China and retool, rebuild, take care of everything of the aircraft. And so that's how the 69th came about. And actually, little known fact is there were two squadrons that were developed, the 69th and another one. And therefore... They went up against one another somehow before they left to go to China. And the 69th was the one that was chosen. And I always teased um Lieutenant Richard Vo, who helped form the squadron and chose all the men. He said they were the best eight balls he ever had. Because he said he went through all of the um information about everybody that was possible to join the squadron. And he said, I knew if these men weren't a little off-key, so to speak, and stretched the law just a little bit, that they would never survive because their task was to leave Texas and put everything in these trucks and their trailers. My father was a machinist and he put all of his equipment and everything, nails, bolts, you name it, everything went in the trailer. And that trailer was then put on a train and shipped off to the USS Benson and Port L.A. And then after that, the Benson took them all to Australia. They left in February wearing their woolies, and they arrived in India. When they arrived in Australia, they were told where they were going. Nobody had summer unies with them. They all had woolies, and that means their wool uniform for those of you who don't understand. And off they went to India, and then their trucks and their tractor trailers were put on trains in India, and their the bottoms of the trucks and the tractor trailers were so high that they couldn't get through the bridges in India, so they had to take all the bottoms off and then get through there. And the northern India, they put everything back on, the tractor trailers and the trucks and all their heavy-duty equipment, and then they prepared to start driving the Lido-Burma Road into China. And that road was nothing but 32 switchbacks, and very narrow and along the way they trucks fell off they had to pull them back up it was yankee ingenuity at its finest so and then they went into china and to kungming and they set up base on the Kung Ming base there where general Chenault was their commanding officer of all of the 14th air force and they proceeded to do their job
0: So their initial task, is this correct, Charlene, was to sort of set up the infrastructure to to get there, but also uh, develop the facilities, uh, build runways, uh, do all of that, right?
3: The runways were already taken care of supposedly by the Army Corps of Engineers and the road itself. But unfortunately, (laughs) some of the bridges were only shored up between the gaps, maybe 40, 50, 100 feet wide in their little streams and rivers in the mountains of the Himalayans. And so they shore them up with those big 30-gallon and 50-gallon gas tanks or gas cans. And these big heavy-duty trucks would go over. And the interesting part about it is these heavy-duty trucks were loaded with um, gas fuel, and they they went around these bins with this gas fuel and the back of their trucks, and you know I there was no hotels there was nothing there was this wooden this road and so off they went and then off the side of the road some of them went but when they arrived in Kungming their main job was there was a huge thing on the base that looked like a hangar, is so what they did is they turned it into a factory. And that factory is where they manufactured the parts that were needed to retool, rebuild, redesign the planes. They had to redesign the P-40 because the Japanese quickly figured out that when they shot up underneath the P-40, there wasn't enough metal there to protect the pilot, and they could kill the the pilot in the plane instantly and shoot them down.
0: Hmm. And uh, there was no real quick and effective supply line, right? So they had to uh, develop solutions to uh, problems like that on their own, you know, where they were. Do you think that the people involved in this, the the, the men, because I guess we are talking about a group of men, right? Uh,
3: yes, 350 of them in the 69th, yes.
0: So do you think that they, because you've done a lot of research and you know, you know, many of them have spoken to many of them. What were they thinking at the time? Was Did they hate their existence? You know, did they just put up with it? Were they excited about what they were doing? I'm sure not everybody felt the same way, but what was the general kind of mood of, of the men?
3: Good question, Max. They were amazing individuals. My father was one of them just because he's my dad didn't make him amazing, but he was. Um, But the men there, they were so interested in what they were doing because they had no idea, like I said a moment ago, where they were headed, number one. And number two, once they got there, it was like their eyeballs were back in their head because none of them had really traveled internationally. And so they didn't have the privilege of understanding the culture, the customs there. There was no supply line whatsoever. So um the ingenuity took over. General Chenault's wife Anna had um some chickens and she um decided, you know, she would share some of the eggs. And there was a man in our squadron, his name was Irving Sobel. Irv was very creative, and so he would go over and talk to Anna every now and then, and he would say, Mrs. Chenault, could I have some eggs? And she'd go, Of course, because she didn't want them starving. And <laughs> What he do? What he would do? He would come back to the guys, and he would have arranged a poker game, and he would <laughs> make sandwiches and sell the sandwiches to the guys to make money. Oh wow! And and so and then some of them, they they appreciated what they were doing while they were driving the road. One of them, Marty Oxenberg, his daughter Judy was born while he his firstborn was. why he was driving the road. It was the 30, depending on which part of the squadron they were in, which convoy. There were three convoys. And he, he was in the middle one, I believe. And so it was 30 days for him to cross the road and there was no way for him to ever know that his daughter, that he even had a daughter or that his wife had given birth. Because in those days, we didn't have... Facebook. We didn't have Instagram. You know, we didn't have all the modern conveniences we have today. The only thing we had was snail mail letters and packages. So when he arrived in Kunming there was this package from his dad celebrating the birth of his daughter with Jewish customs of candies and cakes and such in it and sausage and the only thing that was really good was the sweet things and he's I said well did you eat them and he goes of course and we smoke the cigars too <laughs> so you know it was it was a great thing they all had different opinions and, and experiences on the road.
1: You, you mentioned you know, the, the cost of things and I'm just wondering the the, the first hundred P40s that that the 69th had. Who, who funded all that? Where did, where did the money come from? For that?
3: The U.S. They were supposed to go to the Brits. And we kind of did a a deal, shall we say? <laughs> and, and so they were shifted. Actually, only 99 P-40s arrived in China. The 100th P-40, as I understand, is still at in New York City in the harbor. It didn't make the ship. It just fell to, off the crane. Yes, Micah. Yeah, just to,
2: to clarify, I just want to make—we're talking about the the AVG. This is before the U.S. took an interest in there. This is the, the Chinese army at this point. Is that correct?
3: Well, we kind of jumped. The, okay. The AVG. Yes, I started with the AVG. They stopped in July fourth, nineteen forty-three. I believe it was. And then, uh, and 42 is when the AVG stopped and the China Air Task Force came about, Micah.
2: Okay, so we're talking about at this point.
3: The 14th Air Force.
2: Right, the 14th Air Force and the mili- U.S. military service personnel who were assigned there, as opposed to the, um, the, I guess the term would be back then, soldiers of fortune who participated in the AVG. So it's yes. a, it's a, it's a, it just sets up for a different group of questions about it, that's all.
3: Absolutely, and I appreciate you bringing us back into context here. Yeah, the AVG guys were different. I was privileged to interview the last remaining AVG gentleman before he passed, Fred Laskonski, who wrote his book with the help of his sons, and he was a crew chief, and he worked with General Chenault.
2: So these guys that were sent over to the 69th, they were assigned. They were just told, this is where you're going and this is what you're going to do. It, 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 this was not a volunteer group at all. We're talking about the people that were assigned to some of the, some very, very difficult conditions.
3: Extreme difficult conditions.
0: And Charlene, how uh, tell us a little bit about the the men that you've, had the opportunity to speak with over the years. Uh, What can you tell us about the people that you've met along the way?
3: Very humbling experience. Yeah. I was very fortunate to travel our country for three or four years and interview about 15 different men from different squadrons. Several were pilots, several were 69ers. And one of the men that impressed me so much was a pilot. He was with another squadron. He was part of the 23rd Fighter Group, actually. His name was Wayne Whitey Johnson, and he was 19 or 20 years old when he was in China in the 14th Air Force. And Whitey was amazing. Um, he, he was a phenomenal pilot. He got shot down. He got rescued by the Chinese people, the villagers. Um, and his terror-raising story, But then, when he came back to the States, he was like some of the other men who were pilots and enlisted folks. They couldn't find jobs. Mm, Yes. And so, he went off and created some work for himself. And then he went to college. And he graduated law school. And then he went on to try, uh, in Minnesota, to try a, um, a case Uh, a mining case, which was one of his specialties, uh, at the Minnesota Supreme Court and then on into the United States Supreme Court. And so he was an amazing gentleman, but as what made Whitey such a phenomenal person to meet, and I actually stayed in their home um, for a couple of days with them, he told me wonderful stories about his experiences and how much he revered the Chinese people and how they saved his life. But the interesting part about him was everything he had been through, he was exceedingly humble. But then a few years later, he was still a pilot in his elder years. And then he had a stroke and had a heart condition and he had to have an operation and they had to amputate both of his legs. And being a pilot, you know, he couldn't fly again. But everybody in Minnesota and across the country flew with him you know they flew him wherever he wanted to go and that's the brotherhood of flight you know that's just it so that that's one gentleman that I was really impressed with they were all very impressive um then there was another pilot in our squadron Bud Heiner he was a test pilot and I did not realize this until many years ago we had four test pilots in our squadron. And I said, well, you know, our dads repaired the aircrafts. And please understand, most of these men were only 19 to 23 maybe. And some of them even even um, used their brother's birth certificates because they were older to get in and sign up to go. And so I said to Bud, what, Bud, what? what did you all do? Did you take the planes up and fly around Lake Kung Ming and come back and tell them what worked or what didn't? And he said, oh no. He said, we had missions. And I said, well, if I'm sitting here talking to you now, then that must mean you made it through the missions. And he said, well, we always had a challenge.
1: Huh. He said,
3: one time we went to take off and we were flying and he said it was foggy and I couldn't tell where we were. The instrumentation wasn't working. And he said, I only knew that there were these palm trees, uh, palm trees, excuse me, pine trees, close. And he said, I heard them scraping the bottom of the C40 something. And I went, oh no. And he said, yeah, we prayed real loud that night. (laughs) And so, you know, so there was just these wonderful stories of all their experiences and, you know, how one gentleman driving the road, his truck with the gasoline in it, he lost control over it and he was able to jump out of the truck. And a few days later, where it landed further down in the Himalayans, they picked it up off the road, pulled it up, and off they went.
2: And flying the the route over the hump was really very, very difficult and very, very unusual. Hap Arnold wrote about it and, and talked about how they were using C-87 Liberators. Now, that was a cargo version of the B-24 uh, they had three of those. And it took three and a half tons of aviation fuel to fly four tons of equipment into China, which is just unbelievable. And any one of those aircraft had to fly four missions just to build up enough for one mission to take place in Qingming, Um it, it was unreal. They, they had C-47s, the DC-3, but they weren't designed to fly that high. They were, they were awful. And then they sent in the first uh, first 30 C-46 commandos, which were an unproven transport aircraft that ended up being successful, but that's where they were tested, was flying the hump. It was just an awful, difficult situation trying to supply these guys.
3: The interesting part to me was that when our our squad and the 69th arrived in China, right before that, before the road was open again, and the P-40s from the 23rd Fighter Group were literally flying over two days before our dads started down the road and um, to bomb the Japanese out of there so they could take control again – and the guys were saying how difficult it was and dangerous on, on all fronts. Flying the hump in the P-40s was, and P-38s was, and P-50s was much simpler than flying the big cargos of the bombers. And most of them didn't have oxygen to fly when they were flying the hump. Yeah. Yeah. It was really scary for them. And I said, how did you do this? I interviewed a couple of the guys here in San Diego who flew back and forth and did cargo runs and they said and then one run they would take the, the supplies in and they would take the POWs out hmm. and he said they taking the POWs out was a very interesting scenario because we had they had no oxygen mask for them wow. and yeah
0: hmm. well of course year by year as time goes on uh, the Second World War was is, you know, farther and farther into the past. And, of course, each year we, we lose some of the veterans that served at that time. What is the situation now in terms of, uh, you know, the DRS vets?
3: We were 350 men, as I said. Our last man standing left us the end of January. Hmm. We lost two of our Tigers. Out of 25,000 men who served— Um, General Chenault, we are down to four. In January, we lost our last man. And then the, I think it was the 935 or the triple nickel, their last man went down to Richard Goon. Our last man was Marty Oxenberg, as I mentioned earlier. And um, I was privileged to interview Richard and Marty.
0: Well, of course, uh, I say of course, uh, to me anyway, and I think to everybody here, it's important that the history be captured, that the accounts of the uh, of the people who were there uh, may get recorded somehow, that the historical record continues. How do you see how well we're doing that and, and sort of what's the role of the association in supporting that?
3: Every time we meet, Our biggest role is carrying their history forward, not just the 69th, because when I started this project and took over and formed their nonprofit with them and a board of directors and a legal team, um, we agreed that there were some heavy missions like our dads faced one of them was to continue their history forward, carry their legacy the second one was we wanted to make sure that we could ensure that there were young people in our country um, who had a legacy a connection with the military who needed education and so we started, we have two scholarship funds one is the Marty Oxenberg scholarship fund because he was the gentleman who, and he and his wife Shirley, they pulled together and Found directories and libraries and had them shipped to their home and all over the country they went together and hand wrote and typed out letters and sent 349 letters out looking all over the country a number of times and out of the 350 they found 75 so they, we have his scholarship fund and then we have one the Doris Van Tanner Tursky scholarship fund um, Hank Tursky when Doris passed she was Chinese And when Doris passed, he said, I want to honor Doris. And I said, would you like to set up a scholarship fund? And he said, absolutely. And so because Doris was a big bugaboo about the Chinese people and the history and the relationship. And so that meant a lot to all of us. And so we have her scholarship fund and it is endowed. And we're working on getting Marty's endowed. So it will always go forward because that was one of our biggest things was scholarship education is, and history education. To apply for the scholarship, you have to do research on the 69th and the Flying Tigers to tell their stories to carry that history forward. And we've worked with National History Day. We wrote um, a whole curriculum for um, the teachers of our country to teach about the Flying Tigers Um, the world the um, cbi and when i was interviewing the men that was one thing that the 69th and most of the tigers that i interviewed were most implicit about if you're going to tell our story you can't tell our story without telling the entire story the 69th uh, of the cbi of china burma and india because it hasn't been told so that's part of it and so we have our film that I'm working on and have been, and now that I have almost everybody interviewed and still researching through libraries, presidential libraries, and legacies of the people, of of the children and the grandchildren, because they know the stories that their grandparents told them. And it's just not about those who were at war. What went on here in the U.S.? What was the home front like? What was it like to be a child going to school here? You know, what was it? And so that to me is so important, and that was that's another part of our legacy that we we work on diligently to make sure it's out there.
0: So th- the film is a documentary, I I assume.
3: It started out as a doc, and now it's it's projected. I'll say it that way, Max. It's projected to be an episodic a- adventures of what happened in CBI and with the Tigers and Merrill's Marauders and a few other. Uh, crack squadrons like there was another squadron that most people don't know anything about and that were part of the, I believe still part of the 14th maybe the 10th called the Burma Banshees those were bad boys flying the P-40s oh my goodness (laughs) they were notorious
1: (laughs) what made them bad boys to you
3: oh let's put it this way they were notorious pilots who shot down their their records were outstanding but they they weren't known like the tigers were but they flew p-40s then also the really bad boys were that they would fly low and take out people on the ground as well as people above and yeah their their history is amazing i have a friend whose father was a banshee and they'll be part of the, the of it as well, because I want those folks to be recognized. I want the young people of today to understand how difficult this was with no supplies, no nothing.
0: I think um, uh, often war gets kind of glorified a bit, you know, in movies and in in books and things. And... Uh, w- sometimes, sometimes we don't get to see the you know the true horror of war. Now, I, I'm kind of hesitant right now because there is a lot of um, activity going on in the world these days that's making some of that a little bit more apparent to people. But nevertheless, I, I think people who f- uh, fight in combat or are close to it, they have experiences that the rest of us can't even imagine. And so, telling the story, being able to help people understand really what is this like, I, I think is is important. It kind of fills a void, maybe in people's understanding of what armed conflict is like.
3: You're right, Max. Because that was one thing that the men, because I was a woman, I couldn't get some of them to talk to me about. You know, they'd sugarcoat it. Mm. And then I met Richard Goon, one of the men who just passed. And Richard was one of the most upfront, told me his story, hair-raising. He fought with the 14th, Chinese-American, and he had a special mission. And he, there was in a village that they went, and they went southern China, Burma, back and forth. And he was with the 14th. He was with the Brits in the village. He was with the Chinese military. And, oh, by the way, there were some people we would know as OSS, hmm. which today is the CIA. And he told me the details of what they did. And it, it caused me pause, but I knew that if anything I saw in a movie could not be as difficult as it was for them, um, and how do they compartmentalize? How do they deal with this? How do these men and women who served our country deal with this and in in the world to keep us, our, our freedoms and, and safe? How do they deal with it? Which is one thing that I've experienced myself is PTSD from an accident I had. Mm-hmm. And to me, dealing with, Researching trauma and working with it and helping people understand what it is and how it affects us. I have a different understanding now, a deep different depth of what our military went through and what the children went through. I saw a lot of pictures of children, of Chinese children who were barely able, old enough to walk. They had smiles on their faces. But they were sitting there in, in rags with almost no clothes on and no food for their bellies.
0: Yeah.
2: One of the things that really we need to bear in mind as a societally and something that may not be understood by some of our younger listeners is that we truly live in a different time now, and we're able to talk about PTSD, and people are encouraged to speak of their horrors and work them through. During the time of World War II, this was a time when that was not discussed. You had to tough it out. Those horrors and those awful things that we speak of pretty regularly now were not allowed to be spoken of societally then, and men Typically men, oftentimes children, as Charlene spoke about, were just told to suck it up and live with it. Um, and, and I, I, I sort of saw that within, with, with, with my father, and I talked about that in, in a piece that I did a few years ago uh, called Films with My Father that uh, we had on the show, I can't remember what episode, and Rob put it up on Jetwine about how my dad was able to share some of the stories and the horrors of war with me by by watching films, which is one reason why, of all the movies we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I've seen so many of them. But uh, it wasn't really until, you know, I was with my dad and we were watching Save It and Private Brian in the movie theater when all of a sudden he was crying next to me. And, you know, I was 50 at the time, but I realized that he went through some rough times that he could never really explain to me and couldn't explain to anyone. And I think what Charlene is doing is is critical and wonderful to be able to save and get those memories out as best as those veterans can give them to her and share them yeah. with our current society to understand what happened.
0: Charlene, can you tell us a little bit of... Oh, Rob, do you have something?
1: Well, I was going to ask, we're talking about society, and, and I, of course, the Second World War ended in, in the fall of 1945, and in uh, uh, it was not very many years later that the communists took over in China and drove those, what would have been patriots, I guess, out of mainland China, and, 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 and they became what is now Taiwan. But I'm just curious, How did you ever have any conversations with your members about how they felt watching the, the Chinese landscape that they had fought so hard for become turned upside down?
3: Yes, I did, Rob. That was the question I always asked. My father spoke with me about it, and all the men did. They said some of them were irate, some of them thought what they had been through was for no no good. Um, I asked my dad and Lieutenant Vaux. Lieutenant Vo told me a really great story. He said, after I put this squadron together, excuse this language, folks, I'll be damned if those <clears throat> are going to come in and get anything from us that's going to work. And he was in charge of one of the, the um, Norton bomb sites, that was one of his specialties. And those men were in a a bunker by themselves. They did not interface with the rest of the squadron. Once they got to China, they were by themselves because they had to protect. It was so secret of what those bomb sites were all about. And so on parade day, they had a special ceremony when they were leaving. The sixty ninth was leaving the base and was shutting all down. And he said, I gave, he said, "I we took the stainless steel um, balls that were in the bomb sites and we rolled them in the vault. Those, all the four nights before we had to turn them over, we rolled them so they wouldn't be round anymore. And we put them back in the bomb sites. And on the parade field, there was a stump that they were. They had to um, deliver the bombsite to and do a presentation to each one of the new Chinese militaries, shall we call them. And he, they would slap them down on there to make sure that they still didn't work, even though they looked like they would work. <laughs> so that was one thing that they did. Some of the men... The 69th, some of them stay behind. My dad was one. And he said, sis, sometimes we, I said, well, what did you do with all the planes and the, you know, the, the jeeps and the rigs? What did you do with all the trucks, dad? I mean, there were thousands of trucks. He said, well, he said, we took them to the end of the runway in Kung when they told us to, Get rid of them. We we took them. We drove them off the end of the runway. We threw them down in this gully. We got out and then we burned all of them one night. Hmm. And I said, "Oh my gracious!" And then the next day, they were told that they the planes were they were still taking care of the planes and one minute he said sis one minute we had to take care of the planes and make sure they were mothballed and okay and sensitive stuff was taken out of them instrumentation etc he said and then the next day we got an order saying oh no we still have to fly to this so we had to re-refix the planes <laughs> he said typical army sis and i went okay dad you know so.
0: yeah yeah uh, charlene i i wanted to uh make sure we mentioned the uh, the museum the you Chanel- know Aviation Museum. Tell us a little bit about that and uh, what people can expect to find there.
3: That's an amazing place. It's in Monroe, Louisiana, and it's run by General Claire Chenault's granddaughter, Nell Chenault-Calloway. Um, and it's it's the only place in the country where it's an official Flying Tiger Museum. And 90% of the stuff that is there was Flying Tiger stories, memorabilia, you name it. And the other part of that is, is most people don't know, but it was the Selman Airfield where a lot of the pilots were trained that ended up serving General Chenault, and General Chenault was trained there himself. The museum is built out of um, an old barracks, Mm -hmm. and there's a hangar there, and it's a restoration hangar. And it's one of my favorite places on the museum to go when, I, they, when I'm there visiting. And the reason being is because it's the place where all the restoration is done. And when I was there a few years back, they were literally working on an aircraft that was a model of what General Chenault flew. They took the painting, the tarps off of it and said, here, and they opened the door. And I'm being so teeny. How in the world did General Chenault, who was six plus, six feet tall, climb into that plane and pilot it around for such being a big guy but he did and so it's full of wonderful things and there's a big um, starting this month in a few weeks there'll be a big kickoff and the 69th have just expanded our mission uh, to tell the story further for the new generations of kiddos that are coming up and we are working to have the naming rights for the hangar Where all the restoration is going and the funding that will come about will go towards help to restore the aircraft that that is on the base there at at the Aviation Park in Monroe. Mm -hmm. And so for everyone who can donate, however small, large, magnificent, Nell and the 69th would really appreciate it. Because it's a labor of love to make sure that our history does go forward. The P-40s, there's a couple P-40s there. There's a couple of the 23rd Fighter uh, Squadron at, from Moody. There's one of their planes there that's been restored. There's some Helos. There's some Jeeps, some trucks. So, yeah, we have a plethora of wonderment of World War II there.
0: Wow. And uh, how can people contribute? How can people donate?
3: you can go to our website flyingtigers69drs.com or .org and um, that you'll have up on your website Max I'm sure Yes. and then um, there'll be a button there that says donate to the hangar project and there'll be some more information on our website about the hangar and what happens there and the different aircraft that they've restored and that they still need you all know being pilots those planes need to be serviced and restored all the time, and they're outside, they're not inside. So they're with the elements, and so they need a lot of help. And that's our next, that's our next mission.
0: I think you're, uh, Charlene, I think you keep very busy. I think that there's uh, uh, lots of activities. Are there some other things that we haven't touched on this episode that you might want to make our listeners aware of?
3: There is one we referred to a few moments ago about trauma. Mm. And I have a major concern about trauma in our world today and how our dads, I think Rob brought the point up, or maybe everybody did, Micah and Mike Max T, is they were not able to express the traumas that they experienced. I know from myself, my dad and I were watching Iwo one night, the film at home. And we were about 10 minutes into it and all the bombing started and I'd never seen my dad this way. And I saw my dad in many circumstances where we were saving lives together or whatever. Um, But daddy literally shook. And, te- and it was dark, but I could tell tears were running out of his eyes. And he said, sis, can we please turn it off? And I said, yeah, dad, no problem. We had watched the World War II Flying Tiger movie with John Wayne, and we would chuckle at it. And I'd say, daddy, when I get mine finished, it'll be far better. He said, I hope so, sis. <laughs> you know, No offense, Hollyweird, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I'm really concerned about the people who are currently experiencing trauma and are unaware of it. Because by the time we are 10 years old, according to the Psychological Association on Trauma, um, we experience anywhere from 8, excuse me, 16 years old, anywhere from 8 to 12 traumas in our lives. And most of us just keep pushing it down because as a society, we have not been trained how to deal with trauma. And so that's a project that's near and dear to my heart. I'm working with uh, a friend uh, with law enforcement on it. Um, And I'm working on a couple other areas. And hopefully I'll get it into the military as well. So our new military folks, when they are having basic training, they will be able to step forward and know how to deal with the trauma in the moment besides staying safe. And then how to deal with it later.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that makes you... Stop and think about that topic.
3: Yes. Yeah. And I'm very concerned about the pilots, because a lot of the pilots we have now were military pilots. Right. And I'm very concerned about their well-being, and how do we deal with it?
0: Yeah. We need to address that. Oh, fantastic. Charlene... I know there's about six or eight or 20 other topics and uh, aspects of this that, that we, could, uh, we could talk about. So we'll have to save some of those for a future time. But uh, this has been a, a great conversation. Tell, tell our listeners again, once again, the website where they can find out more information.
3: Flyingtigers69thdrs.com.
0: Perfect. Charlene, thank you so much.
3: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Look forward to another day.
1: Yes. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here.
3: Fly right, guys.
0: On to the news. First item is from the Register. GPS interference, now a major flight safety concern for airline industry. And we also have an EASA press release that goes along with this. And the... IASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, says that GPS jamming and spoofing incidents have increased in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. IASA recently held a joint workshop with the International Air Transport Association, IATA, to deal with this. Now, just so everybody's uh, clear, we talk about jamming and spoofing. This is talking about positioning signals like from GPS or there are other systems that are out there that that do that. Uh, jamming is uh, overpowering the signal, if you will, with a stronger signal so it you can't receive the, uh, the positioning uh, signals. And spoofing is different. Spoofing is sending well, false or fake information to the receiver on the airplane. So uh, the receiver thinks it's getting information from a GPS satellite um, when in fact it's getting information from someplace else, and you can create uh, false locations, you can do all kinds of things if you mess with the the GPS signal. So apparently, this is uh, becoming a problem, and at least in in that region, although they note that it's, it's occurring elsewhere. Yasa says the workshop's high-level conclusion was that interference with satellite-based services that provide information on the precise position of an aircraft can pose significant challenges to aviation safety. Mitigating these risks requires short, medium, and long-term measures. And we can talk about what some of those are. But guys, you know, this is kind of scary stuff because I don't think it takes an awful lot in order to uh, jam or spoof a GPS signal. It's very concerning to me anyway.
4: Well, you got to figure you're trying to receive some extremely weak signals uh, because the uh, satellites are in medium Earth orbit, so they're about 12,000 miles away. So by the time that signal reaches the GPS receiver in your airplane, it's a very weak signal, which means it's relatively easy to overpower that signal from... Uh, some type of jamming signal uh, on the surface. Interestingly, it's not just located yeah, – it's just not just an issue uh, in Bulgaria and places around Ukraine and Russia and stuff like that. We have outages here in the U.S. that occur. Now, the difference is usually there's a notum that tells us ahead of time that we're going to be losing GPS in uh, particular parts of the country. Often, it's in the western part of the country where there's a lot of uh, – a restricted airspace where the military is doing all kinds of uh, uh, you know jamming of gps probably so that they can you know train
2: to uh, you know to deal with those situations when they occur what did we do before gps i mean gps is really relatively new in aircraft uh i mean submarines don't use gps when they're submerged they have an internal navigation system uh th- there's got to be other ways around it that, that back it up i'm assuming we got lost a lot as
1: i recall <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and that's that's precisely one of the issues we're dealing with is that in order to save on the uh, cost of maintaining some of the old VHF omnidirectional systems that we all, like Max and I, grew up with uh, in our training, uh, they've been turning them off. And non-directional beacons uh, around the country, uh, they, they've also been decommissioned. So there's not really quite as much of a backup as there used to be and uh, and of course, the jamming that issue has been around for a while because in the early days of GPS, the military added an error to the GPS systems so that they couldn't be used uh, for nefarious purposes until somebody in the industry said, "Hey, you know these things are pretty valuable. Maybe we ought to try to figure out a way to to be able to use them uh, more effectively, more efficiently." And, uh, and so they did. And now I think we have become so accustomed to them. We become just really complacent. But again, I think of the two topics, I find the, the spoofing to be more the concern because technologically it is much more difficult, I believe, in my limited electronic knowledge uh, to, to send an, an incorrect signal to a system and have a, uh, say, a flight management system in an airplane say, oh, yeah, that looks good to me. Let's go that way. And that could be very, very difficult uh, to, to cope with. And I don't know of any way that we have been able to find a solution that will cope with spoofing. I know I just recently read of some in uh, in the Middle East uh, that they – Think that the Russians or the Iranians are behind or something, but but again, there hasn't been any uh, uh, any kind of solution for that.
2: And are they spoofing just GPS, or are they also spoofing Galileo, which is the EU's version of GPS, and uh, Glonass, which is the Russian version of that? If they're spoofing, I mean, the Russians, I could see why they might want to spoof GPS, but they need their own. Would you know? Can we switch over from one to the other?
1: Can you just change frequencies? I don't think it's that easy. I mean, the, uh, the Galileo, for, for instance, is, is Europe, uh, European based where our GPS, uh, I don't know if we have a name for it other than GPS. I mean, we just use it that way here, but in other countries, it, it's called something different. And again, uh, the, the Russian system, uh, again, I'm sure it uses a much different technology than what we use. In terms of being able to sign on, I don't know that they they can transfer uh, that easily. And uh, so again, this is this is new territory. But I have a feeling we're going to have to figure it out pretty darn quick.
0: Well, you know, on the issue of uh, that you mentioned, Rob uh, and, uh, and and Micah having some kind of a backup to GPS or one of these positioning technologies, the the workshop attendees actually addressed that they. They agreed that one of the things is that aviation must retain, they call it a minimum operational network, MON, I guess, M-O-N, of traditional navigation aids, so that there's a a backup to, or a conventional backup to, GPS or Galileo or whatever they're using for navigation.
1: But that's only here in the United States. So, I mean, and MON is, is FAA's solution to, how do we get rid of this old junk that we don't want to spend the money to maintain anymore? And somebody said, but we can't get rid of all of it just in case. Thank goodness. But again, that's still an evolving topic.
0: Uh, the the workshop attendees also talk about uh, the the need for uh, reporting and, and sharing um, this kind of interference event data. In Europe, this would be through the European Occurrence Reporting Scheme and EASA's Data for Safety Program, Uh, but they think that there's a a real need to collect data on when we're seeing uh, interference, spoofing, uh, or jamming. They also would like to see some guidance from aircraft manufacturers to ensure that the operators are well-equipped to manage jamming and spoofing situations they talked about the short-term, medium-term, long-term things, but uh, this is, uh, I, I think, something that really needs to be taken taken seriously, uh, otherwise we're going to see some, uh, you know, really tragic um, events. I also think spoofing was, uh, remember when the Iranians captured a U.S. drone that mm-hmm. ended up reverse engineering it? As I recall, it was because of GPS spoofing that, you know, the drone thought it was going wherever it was going, but in fact, the... The Iranians were directing or were providing the data so that the drone thought it was someplace else and uh, brought it down to land it. One of their facilities.
4: Yeah, I think that's the biggest danger. I don't think we're going to run into issues where aircraft are descending because of data coming from the GPS. They're going to remain at the assigned altitude. But it would be possible to deceive an aircraft as to uh, you know where it was and where it should be headed. So yeah, I think that's that's the big issue right there is kind of drawing aircraft into uh, other airspace uh, where, gosh,
1: God forbid,
2: you know, they could be shot down or something like that. Do commercial aircraft still fly with a gyro compass, or did they ever, for that matter?
1: I'm not sure if I, What do you mean by a gyro compass? I'm that not sure like if I a, understand. A gyro-stabilized compass,
4: uh, if that's the case, yes.
2: It was something that was a, always, yeah, always on board ships. Directional
4: gyro, I think, is what you're talking about. So, yeah, most of them would have either a mechanical version of that, or the modern ones have an electronic version of that. So far more stable than the, the compass, which is
0: great. All right, well... Uh, personally, I was hoping that we could go uh, at least one week without talking about Boeing. But Great. Let's skip the story.
1: It, it ain't our fault. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's impossible. So uh, several things. Uh, we're seeing some uh, shareholders and other passenger groups uh, um, well get a little excited about what's been happening at, at Boeing, Micah.
2: Yeah, it looks like, uh, the shareholders are out to sue Boeing's board, finally. And, uh, it's being led by the Attorney General of Rhode Island, who argued that, uh, that the manufacturer has betrayed the trust of Rhode Island pensioners. And, uh, they're calling on Boeing to be held accountable for the allegations. And I think that's, uh, this is the only way we're going to get any changes there is, is by hitting them in the pocketbook. And I
0: think this is a good way to start. This particular class action lawsuit t- it takes the uh, the view that uh, there's harm to uh, to shareholders, and what they claim is that, or well, the suit was filed on behalf of uh, people who purchased Boeing common stock between October 23rd, 2019, and now in January 24th, 2024. So, what's so special about October 23rd, 2019, to these uh, to these folks? Well, that's when Boeing and its executives claimed that they were, quote, making steady progress on their, quote, top priority, the safe return to service of the 737 MAX. And that was after the deadly crashes in 2018. So the suit claims, quote, unbeknownst to investors, statements such as those were false and misleading because Boeing failed to disclose that it had been prioritizing here we go. It's profits over safety, which led to poor quality control standards in the production of its commercial aircraft, such as the 737 MAX. That's one suit. There are a couple others that um, that I'm aware of. Six passengers filed a class action lawsuit, another one claiming physical and emotional distress. Those were passengers on that, uh, on that plane. And uh, four passengers are seeking damages from Boeing and Alaska Airlines for experiencing, quote, havoc, fear, trauma, and severe and extreme distress. So you kind of expected these to uh, to come.
1: You know, There's more to this. Oh, go ahead, Mike.
0: I was going to say now
2: would be a great time to get Erin Ampelbaum back on with us to talk about just these suits. You know, she may I don't think she's necessarily involved with all of them. But boy, wouldn't it be interesting to hear it from the perspective of an attorney going after
1: Boeing? I think we should consider that. uh, I I think that is a good idea, especially in the sense that uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, the deferred prosecution agreement that Boeing signed on to back uh, five years ago expired. And uh, for the people that may not understand what that is, the uh, victims of those two accidents in uh, Indonesia and in Ethiopia were obviously looking for ways to to sue Boeing for compensation for something to help straighten out the problem uh, of all the uh, family members that they lost. And uh, somehow Boeing managed to enter into an agreement with our Department of Justice. uh, That was under a previous administration that said, uh, we won't sue Boeing this, but we'll expect that they're going to be doing the right thing from now on. And again, that was about five years ago. And that right thing is precisely what the people in these lawsuits are are saying is the problem issue, that Boeing didn't really uh, live by the agreement that they never really did take a closer look at the uh, safety issues and the production issues and all the other things that made the 737 MAX a topic uh, at this point. And so that will be something that will be coming up. uh, It's going to be a good one in an election year. Uh, Will the Biden administration extend it, extend it? Yes. Will they extend it or will they allow the uh, victims to to come back and sue Boeing for uh, grievous compensation? amounts and if so how will that work and so th- this is not going to go away anytime soon i don't believe
2: yeah and the other point is is that you know talking about some of the other suits that uh, um, four passengers are seeking damages and argue they experienced havoc fear and trauma over a alaska flight where the door came off but Aaron also, when she spoke with us, talked about how the Montreal Convention says that if you weren't injured, that there really isn't anything that you can do. And it also says that there were no serious injuries on the flight. So uh, I, this would be another interesting topic, I think, to discuss from the legal perspective.
0: Well, we also see um, a message to employees from the Boeing Commercial Airplanes president that, and
1: CEO, that's Stan
0: Deal. He put out all the, this message to employees, Rob, it, that I found kind of interesting reading.
1: Yeah, th- this happened last night, and uh, and of course it was followed up in a in a Washington Post story this morning that uh, Boeing said we've been talking to our employees, and we realize that that they know things, and that now that we have spoken to them, we find that there are definitely some issues with our our production processes, and. Uh, uh, so we're going to really be looking at uh, looking closely at what we can do to to solve those those problems. And of course, based on on the previous story, people are saying, "Haven't we been down this road before?" And uh, but but they also mentioned that uh, a thousand uh, Boeing employees offered up suggestions during a uh, a safety stand down that they had. I don't think it was last week, I believe it was the week before, where production was shut down for a day uh, at all the plants and employees were given the opportunity to speak directly to management and tell them what they believed the problems were. Well,
2: they talked about the 737 MAX fuselages with mis-drilled holes that have to be reworked. And and Boeing said that it's going to slow down the delivery, uh, that uh, they don't pose any immediate safety issues, but that's because the jets aren't in service. So uh, it's like, oh, whoops, I I guess we foul, fouled up again. And that came from uh, Spirit Aerosystems, which, again, was part of Boeing. And both Spirit
1: and Boeing have said, yep, uh, we need to do a little further, broader inspections at Boeing. Uh, the, the issue also came up at the uh, Boeing sessions about stopping traveled work. And to those uh, folks who are not familiar, they'd say, what in the Sam Hill is that? Because I had to look it up. I didn't even know what they were talking about either. But they're talking about outsourcing and how there are problems with outsourcing processes become confused from one location to another when someone at an outsourced uh, location doesn't quite finish something the way they're supposed to, and the product ends up being sent uh, down the line anyhow. And Boeing is now saying, gee, maybe we should look at ways that we keep more of the production of our airplanes uh, within the confines of actual Boeing properties. That, that smacks in the face of uh, their, their concept of increasing shareholder value by outsourcing everything that you can and cutting costs. So this whole thing is not going to go away anytime soon, I, I don't believe. And if you read what
2: they said about traveled work, it's even...
1: Oh, funnier from my perspective. We
2: have to maintain this discipline within our four walls and we are going to hold our suppliers to the same standard. Well, based on what I'm seeing, if they hold their suppliers to the same standard, that's really no standard to hold anybody to. And then it goes on to say, we will take advantage of the days in the factory so that our teams can catch any unfinished jobs across all 737, all across all 737 factory positions. But the work came in from Spirit on this door, and it went out with the same problem. So, I don't know what Boeing's trying to say. Or if It's great talk,
1: you know. And then there's also the topic, uh, the also the uh, problem that Boeing additionally uh, learned, uh, either through their own people or or from the Spirit people, that there are another four dozen or five dozen fuselages uh, that will not be delivered right now because they again had holes that were misdrilled at the spirit facility. And um, so they said, well, that's okay. We'll just slow the process down, take the time it needs to do the job right because we don't want to see this kind of issue ever pop up again. Oh, my Lord. I mean, what? And it took almost uh, how I'm sorry. This is just incredible to me because they have known about these issues and and the problems with outsourcing for years. And they didn't care. Uh, But again, it's it's the fact that those people were almost killed on that Alaska flight. Uh, They found other hardware that was loose. Now Boeing is being sued by shareholders. For this mismanagement, and as Micah said when we talked about uh, uprooting the board, oh my God, it is about time. But we'll see whether they actually do it or not. How many of you guys
2: remember the commercial? It was, it's not your father's Oldsmobile.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's not
0: your father's Boeing. <laughs> yeah. So before we move on, because we could we could do Boeing for like we, we could do a whole podcast. It's you know the Boeing podcast or whatever. hopefully
1: we won't have to. I
0: hope I hope we don't. But um, so as a continuous improvement slash Six Sigma slash Toyota production process guy, when I look at this message to employees and I see doing things that are, okay, good, a safety stand down day, thanking the employee who flagged uh, the this, this most recent problem to his manager, all these other things, I don't see indications that any of this institutionalizes a quality culture. This just, it just feels to me, and this is just my personal opinion, I mean, I love Boeing, I really do, but this just feels to me like uh, Band-Aids and not things that, as I said, institutionalize a quality culture. It, I just, I, I don't see it there.
1: I don't think you could possibly have had this kind of culture in place for as many years as Boeing has and uh, fix it overnight,
0: no, you can't.
1: Uh, it, it sounds like an awful lot of what I would call PR fluff. Uh,
0: I don't see the long-term strategy to change. Yeah, I, I
1: just don't. No. And, and maybe it will come, but we, we don't see any evidence of it yet.
0: There's a lot of rhetoric with no action. This is also why we're never going to end up with Boeing sending us a guest on this podcast.
2: <laughs> oh, right. But the fact is... We love Boeing and we want to love Boeing. And there's so many wonderful things that we can do in talking about Boeing. And if we had a guest, we would treat that guest with incredible respect and probably would never touch on this. So if anybody from Boeing is listening, that is absolutely the truth. But I think Boeing is in difficulty right now internally. They have bigger fish to fry.
0: Yeah, they do. And I can understand it. So here's a little peek behind the curtain, right? This is episode 786. What's the next episode? 787. 787. Wouldn't it be nice to have someone come who can speak to that aircraft from an inside historic perspective and all? I don't think it's going to happen now.
2: I think we should not number that episode and just call it episode Dreamliner. (laughs) That's a good solution.
0: All right, next up, another favorite topic to have an opinion on uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And, uh, Micah, you found a kind of an interesting article in the Washington Post. It's uh, titled Fat Sugar Trash, All the Weird Things That May Fuel Planes by 2050.
2: Yeah, I found it really fascinating and and, and in some ways vindicating, but that's something else, um, that it talks about how aircraft account for 2% of global carbon emissions, uh, far behind cars and power plants. Uh, but, uh, Still, the aviation sector is trying to switch away from uh, fossil fuels and going to SAF. But it goes on to say that the new fuel sources come with their own sets of trade-offs, and uh, some will require incredible research to develop. But the current sustainable aviation fuel that we are using – is almost just as difficult as the fossil fuel that we're using, with the possible exception of the used cooking oil and vegetable oil, oil and animal fat that we refine into kerosene. Um, but all the other types of sustainable aviation fuel made from corn ethanol and uh, garbage and grassy crops and uh, all of those kinds of things are just as difficult in causing uh, emissions and uh, climate issues as uh, as fossil fuels. It just happens in a different manner or in a different place in the cycle.
0: The article has some interesting graphs that show between now and 2050 uh, what the uh, prospects are for these different sources for SAF and why 2050. Well, the, the goal is net zero carbon by 2050. And for aviation, the sort of the key enabler is SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. But when they look at fat, at cooking oil, vegetable oil, animal fat, and all those things, um, what they see is a fairly level outlook for the production possibility for those fuels. In other words, there isn't enough cooking oil be, you know, being produced that can significantly impact uh, reaching net carbon zero by, by 2050.
4: Exactly. There are only so many French fries being made at McDonald's. They're not going to go out there and triple it so that we have tons of waste oil available. I mean, it's great that that's a cheap source, but it's not the the big solution. And I think that's the problem, right? There's no one button you can push and just solve this problem. It's going to be a lot of little tiny things.
0: As for ethanol, um, they point to a World Resources Institute estimate that it would take a, a land mass larger than the size of California to make enough corn ethanol to meet the U.S. airline industry's fuel demand. So, I mean, you can put a chip, yeah, take a chip out of it, but you're not going to be uh, fueling the fleet uh, with ethanol. And then people are there building plants, and that you know, and that's that's great, and all. But also it talks about how the corn
2: requires so much water and so much fertilizer that we're creating other problems as we're growing the corn to make into fuel as opposed to food.
0: Yeah, yeah. Agriculture, when you look at it, and a lot of people don't don't like to hear this, particularly farmers, but agriculture produces a lot of carbon when you look at the entire range of activities that uh, have to take place to, to grow a crop. And uh, corn, I mean, it you know, it's a feedstock. You know, do you really want to grow feedstocks and not feed people but develop fuel? Uh, that's an issue. Uh, another possibility is on this uh, grass or cellulosic cover crops. Um, and what I take that to mean is, you know, they plant like winter wheat or you, you, plant, you plant a cover crop frequently off-season or if you're uh, rotating crops, you know, using that as uh, the base for – Creating fuel, and they estimate that uh, this could actually meet almost half of the demand for aviation fuel by 2050. Um, but there's issues, and then of course there's hydrogen, and we've talked about hydrogen before. A lot, a lot of car makers. I'm seeing a lot of a lot of uh, news items come across the desk here about the hydrogen powered cars and things. And we've talked about the you know the fact that at least currently most hydrogen production, I think over 95 percent, if I remember right comes from natural gas, so you're still using—it's not sustainable. People say, oh, the hydrogen's sustainable fuel. Yeah, but you're making it in a way that's not sustainable. So it's an interesting article, and I don't want people to get the impression that, like, we're all against sustainable aviation fuel because far from it. You know, the the opposite, in fact. Um, But the Washington Post article, and also there's an article at uh, paxx.aero. We'll have that in the show notes, too. There's just a lot of issues. There's a lot of work to be done. And 2050 is probably going to come up a lot faster than we think. All right. Uh, military item. You know, I think I forgot to say at the start of the show that David was off this week. Uh, David Vanderhoof from uh, military.com. As the Marine Corps says goodbye to decades-old jet, its, main, its maintainers rather hit the fleet for the last time. And, of course, this is about the uh, the Harrier. The AV-8B Harrier II, been in service since, uh, I think, Micah, since like the 80s. 1985,
2: it came into service, and it's going out of service in 2025. That's, uh, what, 40 years, I guess? Wow. And uh, the, uh, the Navy just trained, and Marine, rather, just trained its last class of Harrier maintainers. And they're headed out to sea to maintain those AV-8Bs. And uh, and that'll be the last time that there's a class. It's the last class to ever be uh, created to maintain the, the Harriers because uh, we've got two more
0: years of them and then we won't see them flying anymore for the U.S. Marines. And of course, what's coming in is the F-35B, uh, which is the Stovall version of the F-35, short takeoff vertical land. Uh, that's what the Marines are going to be using in replacing the the Harriers, and of course the uh, the F thirty five B. It has that lift fan in the in the center of the fuselage, basically, uh, as well as a nozzle in the tail end that can rotate and direct straight down. So you've got engine exhaust basically directed downward from the. The tail of the engine and then you've got the lift fan, which is taking power off the jet engine and running a fan to blow air down, not going through the combustion process in the in the center of the aircraft. It's kind of a complex system. Rolls Royce does the lift fan portion of the of the F thirty five B that's what they're responsible for. So that's coming in I don't know what the status is on the f35 b I remember at one point there was some issue with the the downward directed engine thrust kind of raising havoc with the uh, carrier decks, so I don't know if they've resolved that or not.
1: We're going to miss the uh, harrier though it's kind of cool well I, I remember we used, we used to get them all the time here in Chicago at the uh, uh air and water show we have every summer, and I had an opportunity to meet a harrier uh not not the uh, pilot but one of the crew. Uh, crew chiefs on it, and I said, something about, you know, what makes this such a special airplane, do you think? And he said, this is probably one of the only airplanes that can turn as much fuel as the Harrier uses in vertical takeoff and landing mode into noise as any airplane I've ever worked on.
0: (laughs) They are loud. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. It's fun to watch, though. All right. Hey, do you remember those of you listening, uh, in the past, it kind of feels like it was a long time ago. We, we used to have an occasional positive airline story. And so it just seems fitting that with all of the you know, negative uh, commercial aviation uh, issues that we're seeing these days, that we have a positive airline story. Max T., you found this one.
1: Yeah, and the yokes on him, too. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, I think you guys are all just jealous. You'd like to have a flamingo named after you. Yeah. <laughs> now, this this is a really interesting, fun, bizarre, but kind of cool story. And it's about Alaska Airlines and an unusual request that one of their flight attendants uh, got. Uh, she said that uh, she was uh, working a flight from Atlantis to Seattle back in August, and a passenger rang the call button and asked if she could help him keep some eggs warm. <laughs> She was a little confused that she didn't know exactly what that was about. But it turned out that the passenger was a zoo official transporting rare Chilean flamingo eggs from the Atlanta Zoo to Seattle's Woodland Park Zoo. And that official's incubator had stopped working. So the uh, eggs were in danger of uh, dying on the airplane. So uh, Amber who was the uh, the flight attendant uh, went back to the galley she found some rubber gloves she filled them with warm water she brought them back to the passenger who wrapped them around the eggs and uh, i guess some of the guests nearby offered coats and scarves and things for uh, extra uh, insulation Months later, she received a call from the zoo asking her if she'd like to meet the baby flamingos that she had saved. All six of them had hatched. And not only that, they honored her by naming one of the flamingos after her. So just a fun story. It is a great story. I, I love it. And should I mention, what a bunch of good-looking flamingos. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Have you ever seen an ugly flamingo? Not, I mean, come uh, on. <laughs> Well, those flamingo chicks are just so cute looking in, in the pictures on the website and they're gray because they don't turn pink until after they, uh, they mature and they, they're eating whatever they're eating that turns in pink. But I just love that gray cover because I would love to see the gray with the pink. I think it would just be a wonderful combination, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And the, the
4: beak is, you know, bent almost
2: 90 degrees
4: about halfway
2: down. It's just, it's really kind
4: of
0: remarkable. Anyway, it's just, I love the look of the bird. It's totally cool. Yeah. All right. Really one last story. This is FAA urges Congress not to hike airline pilot retirement age to 67. So Max, which side of that line are you on? (laughs)
4: <laughs> I'm kind of right on the line. Uh, but uh, talking to the story, uh, there has been uh, a lot of suggestions in the industry over the last couple of years that one way to help mitigate the airline pilot shortage would be to bump the uh, retirement age up a couple of years. And that would uh, keep uh, hundreds of pilots still working and it would make it just a little bit easier for the airlines to, uh, to fill their ranks. And so there's just a lot of people lining up on different sides of this. I was surprised to see that uh, the House uh, passed a uh, bill recently by a very large margin, Out to find the numbers, uh, 351 to 69 on an aviation reform measure that would have uh, allowed this uh, retirement age to move up to uh, 67. However, here's the really interesting part. Uh, it was just revealed that there was a, a letter from the FAA Administrator, uh, Mike Whitaker, that went to, I believe, one of the committees and uh, somehow this letter has been released but uh, essentially it says uh, we strongly encourage proceeding uh, that type of change with appropriate research so the FAA can measure any risk so apparently the FAA is saying hey we really don't want you to you know hike the uh, retirement age right away until we've done some uh, research on this uh, so kind of interesting i would imagine that research would take a fair amount of time uh, and this is i think for a bill that would be uh, passed sometime this year. So I'm not sure that uh, you'd be able to to get the research done before the Uh, Yeah, the bill might be uh, signed into law, but I'm trying to think back, Uh, Rob, do you remember when they hiked the retirement age from 60 to 65? My recollection was that there was little to no research that had been done at that time. And in fact, if you go back many, many, many years, when they first put in the age 60 um, limitation, I don't think there was any research or data that went into that one. So we seem to have a history of, you know, little data uh, before these changes.
1: Well, that's true. And of course, one of the issues that has uh, kept the Airline Pilots Association away from signing on to this is that uh, these pilots that are uh, above the uh, classic age of 65 cannot fly internationally. Uh, They are restricted. Uh, from uh, international because most countries require that uh, the pilots flying in uh, the PIC flying into the country meet the age requirements of the area let's say Europe to, at the time that they're uh, they're flying and and of course pilots that are older than 65 will not be able to meet those requirements and uh, and so the airline pilots association saying that. Why bother? Because that means that all these people are, are going to be restricted to flying domestically you in the US and we already have a mess here. Why make it worse?
2: Is that requirement the same for part one thirty five? Because I know pilots that retired from Part one hundred twenty one and are now flying part one hundred thirty five. Do they are they not allowed to fly internationally?
1: Uh, Well, there is a difference between scheduled Part 135 and non-scheduled, and non-scheduled is what we would typically call uh, charter pilots. I used to be one, and so I could still be flying at this point if I wanted to be, providing that the insurance would cover us, which is another big detail that uh, we haven't even gotten into yet because insurance requirements are changing constantly. Uh, But again, scheduled 135, yes, you also would not be able to fly uh, outside of the U.S. But chartered, you could, like net jets, for example. Uh, Yes.
4: Interesting that you bring up net jets because uh, there was just a, a law that was passed by Congress, I think, late last year which was written specifically for NetJets. It was written in a way that it said essentially charter companies having at least so many thousand employees are allowed to set a retirement age of 70, and there is a lawsuit proceeding on that right now because uh, they let go over 100 pilots pretty recently uh, for people who were over 70.
2: That's interesting. We um, When Brian and I on the Journey as a Reward, I think it was episode um, sixty we had captain jeff on who just aged out uh with with Delta at age sixty five and we talked about this pretty extensively with him and if he would still be able to fly would he if they extended it and uh, and his opinion was that uh, he can feel he still feels he's he's safe but he does definitely feel himself slowing down, not being quite as sharp, and that he would not want to fly any longer uh, after turning 65. But then he also talked about other some of his friends and some people that I know that went into Part 135 and decided to continue.
0: Yeah, well, my strategy is retire early and have fun. None of this 65, 70.
2: Retire early and often. And
0: often.
1: <laughs> and having fun... It means that you can go out and buy an F three fifty truck and a, uh, a a camper and drive everywhere because you don't like being around airplanes because they're too scary. <laughs>
0: exactly. Hey, I got it Linexed today, so I'm uh, one step closer. Now, is this why we might not be here next week? Yes, because I I tried to figure out a way to make it work. Okay, so so. All right, this is...
2: (laughs) What's up with the geeks?
0: (laughs) Yeah, what's
3: up with the geeks?
0: Okay, so no episode next week. We have to skip a week because I have to skip a week because I try to make it work. You know, I I, I usually jump through hoops and get hotel rooms and do all kinds of things to try to make it work. But uh, next week, uh, taking delivery and it's just not going to work. So we're going to skip next week. Um, So that also pushes the uh, 787 episode off a week. Uh, Michael, what do you have for us?
2: Well, on Saturday night, I was searching around on uh, on my Roku, and I found that "The High and the Mighty," my favorite John Wayne aviation film, is available on Paramount Plus, and I, I. Texted that out to all you guys. And so I watched it again on Saturday night. And boy was it fun. It was just really fun. Um it's uh you know, it's a novel. It's based on a uh, on a novel by uh, Ernest K. Gann, who also wrote Islands in the Sky and Fate is a Hunter. And, you know, he also was a contributor to Flying Magazine, but it's one of the first films of its kind. Uh, in terms of an airplane disaster film. And, uh, you know, all the other films like it, uh, Fate is the Hunter, uh, Zero Hour, even the airport series, even Airplane are based on it. But it's so old, from 1954, that it's, it's incredibly cliché, and it's dated, and it's camp, but it's fun. And I just had a great time watching all two and a half hours of it.
0: Cool. All right. Max Trescott, what's new with you? Well, once again, I am just
4: totally befuddled by the FAA and what they are willing to do. I mean, this borders on incompetence, but According to the uh, the FAA, I am now qualified as a helicopter instrument pilot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I passed my check ride last week, and uh, it was fun. You know, it's it's different, um, and, and you know the real, I don't know if I've talked about this, but the thing I learned when I first started training for my instrument rating in the helicopter was that there are no Robinson helicopters certified to fly into the clouds, which is really unusual when you think about it. Because, for example. Lots of instrument training happens in the Basic Cessna 172, and you can fly in the clouds all days, uh, all day long, and most of them. Uh, and so, I was really kind of surprised. Oh, this you know basic trainer can't go into the into the clouds. And so, what I've learned is there are many, many uh, helicopter pilots, and many of them working as in the industry, who have never been in the cloud, even though they have an instrument rating. So, <laughs> and, and the reason I think is the requirements for a helicopter to be able to go into the clouds are fairly significant, and I've. You know, read them briefly and I don't recall the details, but it has to do with the the level of sophistication of the autopilot and, you know, some other things as well. And you just don't find that in some of the uh, more basic helicopters until you've gotten into, you know, multi million dollar type of helicopters. Uh, and so, for example, even one of my former instructors who's now flying Bell 407s, you know, that particular helicopter, uh, it's an older one. He can't fly in the clouds. So I guess some of the, the newer ones can. So it's been fascinating, great fun. And, uh, you know, I, I'm still still amazed that anyone lets me anywhere near a helicopter, but I love doing it when I can.
2: So when do you use instrument flying on a helicopter?
4: Well, when you are in less than VFR conditions, which would be, you know, when, when the visibility is poor or when the clouds are low or things like that. So, so, for example, um, we have uh, Stanford One, which is a medical helicopter that flies out of Stanford Hospital nearby here. And I have seen them on instrument flight plans before because, you know, they need to go pick up people in all kinds of weather. So, you know, that's one place where it does happen.
0: All right. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention. Uh, we uh, got an email from Tom uh, who told us about or pointed us to something called the Da Vinci Community Aviation Day. And this is uh, something uh, March 23rd, 2024, at Da Vinci Schools in El Secondo, California. It's a free event. Uh, focuses on career opportunities. Uh, so uh, if you're interested in career opportunities and you're in that area, you might want to look into it. But also they're looking for local aviation industry professionals and organizations who would be willing to come uh, that day, that Saturday and uh, share what they do with the community. And so uh, you can if you can do that, that would be uh, something you might want to look into. You can contact Steve Wallace. He's the executive director and that number is 3103863099. And that's the uh, Community Aviation Day, March 23rd. It's 9 a.m to uh, until noon to 12 p.m. So it's a, a three hour event. Da Vinci schools in El Secundo, California. Are you close to that, Max? I don't know California at all.
4: No, I didn't know it at all until I moved here. And what I learned is if I hear the name of a town that I'm not familiar with, it's probably in Southern California. And, that's def- and I have heard this name before, and I do know that it's in Southern California. But where, I don't know.
0: All right. We want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest, again, was the amazing Charlene Fontaine. She's the founder and executive director of the Flying Tigers 69th DRS Association. We'll have that website in the show notes. Uh, we've also got a uh, a video, a, a teaser, a tra- I don't know if it's a trailer or a teaser. I think it might be a teaser uh, for the, uh, uh, I think, the film that she talked about. And that'll be in the show notes. You can find those at airplanegeeks.com. Direct link to the show notes for this episode is airplanegeeks.com slash 786. As always, our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right, Max Trescott, uh, where do we find you?
4: So for El Segundo fans, I I don't want to uh, leave you out. I see that you're located right on the beach, just south of LAX. So now we know exactly where you're located, very close to uh, Torrance. But yes, uh, I would encourage people to come over and check out Aviation News Talk if you're interested in aviation, uh, general aviation, that is specifically. And if you want to shoot me an email, just go out to aviationnewstalk.com and click on contact at the top of the
2: page. All right. And uh, Micah, our main man. Well, I'm still on Twitter. I'm one of the last holdouts and I'm at Maine Fly there, M-A-I-N-E like the state, fly like let's go fly. And you can always find me with our good friend Pasadena Brian Coleman, our former associate producer on the Journey is a Reward podcast. And we should have a new episode coming out on Monday. And Brian and I should be recording a new episode coming up this week when he comes back from uh, Seattle.
0: And Rob Mark,
1: tell us about your podcast. Well, I don't have a podcast oh what are you doing here then well I I just like to hang out with podcaster kind of people because I think you guys are really cool <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but uh, they'll find me around the uh, pages of various and sundry aviation publications uh, that uh, are produced here in the US and uh, and of course always at uh, jetwine.com with Scott Spangler our editor excellent
0: And I'm Max Flight. You can find where I hang out if you visit 30,000feet.com. So please join us again in two weeks as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Nighty-night. And for David, thanks for listening.